Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Please do open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. I want to welcome our guests as well. We're so glad that you're here this morning to worship God, to hear his word. Uh, I also want to add my voice to Pete's uh, in commending Joel Shorey to you. Uh, Lori and I went to the pastor's college 11 years ago with Joel and Ashley, and they're an excellent couple. Uh, We love them. We're excited about this church plant. We commend them to you. Uh, It's worthy of your support. Uh, We also have other dear friends from the pastor's college here, Rob and Gina Flood, trying to hide in the back, but I'm calling them out. Uh, So glad you guys are here with us this morning. Uh, My son asked this morning when we're going to have lunch with the lakes. So he's close. It was a body of water, but he wasn't quite there. Uh, Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we do thank you that you are the God who speaks and acts in history, that you have given us your word. Every one of us comes into this room this morning made in your image, made to know and love and worship and serve you, and in need of your grace. There are many sorrows and trials in this life, many challenges that we face, and we need you to work. We need you to speak to us. We need you to convict us of sin and lead us to repentance. We need you to uh, enlighten us, to lead us into truth. We need you to encourage and strengthen us and to exhort us. Uh, We want to see Jesus more accurately. We want to see him for the great Savior that he is. We want to know and love and worship you. And so we pray, God, work in us and be glorified through this time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since this is the final Sunday of the month and we have more of our children in for the sermon than normal, I want to begin by orienting us a bit to the book of Joshua before we jump into Joshua 3 and 4 this morning. Joshua has many great and famous stories that you children know well. It's very important that we understand the overall story of the Bible so that we can understand Joshua and our passage this morning in their proper context and not just as some sort of disconnected morality tale. All of these stories gain their meaning through how they relate to the one grand story of Scripture. In every way, the story of Joshua is most fully understood in light of the story of Jesus. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible, coming right after the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in those five books, we encounter the God who created all things, who sustains all things, and who works good purposes in his world in spite of the rebellion of man made in his image. And in Genesis 12, God enters into history in a special way. He inserts himself and chooses one man, Abram, as the object of his promises and mercy. Now, Abram lived around 2000 B.C., so 4,000 years ago. And in the covenant that God made with Abram, he promised to give him a land for his descendants, what would become the nation of Israel. And that land was to be a place of blessing, a place to worship God. Now, if you know the story of the first five books of the Bible, you know that the path of Israel to that land of promise was long and hard. Famine brought them to the land of Egypt during the days of Joseph. And shortly after that, they were enslaved in Egypt. Their situation was oppressive and desperate, and they... And out of that desperation, they cried out to God, and the Lord heard them. 
And the Lord raised up Moses. And if there's any one human hero in those five books, it's Moses. Moses is the prophet of God. His life foreshadows the life of Jesus. He leads the dramatic exodus out of Egypt. He faces down Pharaoh, stands on Sinai, receives the Ten Commandments, leads a rebellious rabble, brings water from a rock, parts the Red Sea, and in every way provides a picture of the type of deliverance that Jesus would later provide for those who trust in him. But after escaping from Egypt, Israel's in the wilderness on their way to the land of promise, and they're faithless. They just witnessed God perform many miraculous feats, and yet they grumble and complain. And Numbers 4, one to, or 14, 1 to 4, gives a good picture of their attitudes. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We tend to minimize the seriousness of grumbling and complaining in our own lives. But God takes these sins very seriously. He judges that generation for their unbelief. And none of them are allowed to enter the land of promise. So as that generation dies off, Israel's finally prepared to receive the land that was promised to Abraham some 600 years earlier. Just consider that for a moment. 600 years Do you think the Israelites ever wondered if that promise was empty? Do you think they wondered if God was going to fulfill his word? Do you ever wonder about the promises of God? Well, it's in preparing to enter the land of promise that we come to the book of Joshua. And Joshua begins with a funeral, the funeral of Moses. We have to understand, Moses towers over the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. Over and over and over again, he's held up as the prophet of God. God spoke to him face to face. He showed him his glory. If you read those books, you'll see repeatedly that the Lord speaks to Moses, and Moses speaks to the people, and the people are called to obey Moses, which is really to obey the Lord. Throughout these books, Moses has a faithful young companion named Hosea. Hosea means he has saved. And as this young man attends Moses, he has many amazing experiences. He ascends Sinai beside Moses. He becomes the captain of the armies of Israel. He's one of the 12 spies sent into the land of promise. He's one of the two spies who are faithful to call Israel to trust God and advance into the land. And over time, it becomes clear that Hosea will be Moses' successor. In Deuteronomy 34, Moses lays hands on him and anoints him for his new role. And along the way, he changes this young man's name from he has saved to Yahweh saves, or Joshua. Joshua means Yahweh saves. Moses removes the ambiguity in his name and made explicit the name of the God who saves his people. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, and we recognize that name because it's given to a baby boy some 1,400 years later, born of a virgin, 
And it comes in the Greek of our New Testament as Jesus and through Latin into English as Jesus. So Joshua and Jesus are the same name and they mean Yahweh saves. Well, in the story of Joshua then, we have a foreshadowing of Jesus and a continuation of the story of salvation that began with the exodus under Moses and now continues into the land of promise under Joshua. Joshua is a remarkable book for any number of reasons. It's obviously the fulfillment of centuries of God's promises. But it also contains accounts that many critics cite as reasons to disbelieve in God. The conquest of Canaan includes the annihilation of whole peoples, men, women, and children. Those passages challenge our assumptions. And we will preach through them in the weeks ahead. But Joshua is remarkable in other ways. In many respects, it's a a triumphal book. Israel's finally entering and inheriting the land. A new leader has been elevated who's faithful to God and he leads God's people in triumph. But at the end of all this victory and triumph, in the final chapter of the book, Joshua issues a stirring challenge to Israel. The question of their allegiance to God has not been settled. Even through the fulfillment of God's promises, their hearts were still prone to wander. And so Joshua issues a call that's destined to be emblazoned on millions of plaques in living rooms the world over. Choose this day whom you will serve. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I've taken us to the end of the book today because we have to interpret the entire book in light of that end. Even after they had seen God be faithful to his promises, there was still question whether Israel would be faithful to him. What we see over and over again throughout the Old Testament are two truths. God is faithful and his people are not. And this drives home to us over and over again the truth of Joshua's name. Yahweh saves, not man. Even in a book with the name of a famous man for the title, the one true hero is God. It is God who fights and fulfills. So with that background in mind, let's read the first portion of today's text. We're going to do a bit of a journey of discovery to see how God leads Israel through three steps of preparation and deliverance and remembrance. And those truths will then apply to our lives as well. So let's read Joshua 3, 1 to 13. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hear 
is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall, be, shall stand in one heap. So let's look at preparation. There's a, a great danger in being overly familiar with the Bible. If you've grown up in church or if you've read your Bible much, it's easy to drain the drama out of narrative. We know the story, beginning, middle, and end. And since we know how it all ends, we can forget what it was like to live through these events. Well, not so for Israel here in Joshua 3. They knew that the Lord had promised salvation. They knew that he had brought their forefathers out of Egypt and that their forefathers had rebelled against God and died in the wilderness for their rebellion. But their stories hadn't yet been written. You can imagine their wonder as they stood on the banks of the Jordan. Would God truly deliver them? And if he did, they still there were, knew there were still many adversaries in front of him. In fact, they stood at the Jordan not as tourists on a journey and not as wanderers looking for rest, but as warriors before a campaign. We see that more explicitly in chapter 4. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh have sent their armed men, and they accompany the rest of the tribes, which include armed men. It references 40,000 men, as well as their wives and children and possessions. Many challenges are in front of them, not least of which is actually crossing the Jordan. We need to recognize the immensity of that. God leads Israel to cross in the spring when the Jordan's at flood stage. And he leads them not to the narrowest part, but to one of the widest. The river's probably a mile across at this point, where Israel's led to cross it. Now, isn't that just like God? He leads his people into challenges and into trials. Why does he do that? Why isn't the Christian life just one of upward progress and continued positive Momentum. Well, this too is where understanding the story of Scripture is vital, absolutely vital for our faith. For Israel and for us, this earth and all of its blessings and responsibilities are not ultimate. They are good and they're to be received with gladness and they're temporary. We're not yet home. And so this life is one of tension. We receive the Lord's blessings with gratitude and, and gladness. And then we suffer as well. We are told not to be surprised at fiery trials that come our way in 1 Peter 4.12. It's through many tribulations that you must inherit the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22. God ordains trials and suffering in our lives because he's after our faith. 1 Peter 1.7. He's working to keep us from idolatry. And to fix our hopes only in him. And so we find Israel on the banks of the Jordan. They're entering a land of promise and they're entering dressed for war. They know some of the challenges in front of them. God knows all 
of the challenges in front of them. But Israel doesn't yet know how this story will play out. Some of those on the banks of the Jordan will prove faithless. Some will die in rebellion. But, but some will inherit the promises. And what makes the difference? Faith in God. Now, I need to define faith, I think, lest we're tempted to go in some sort of prosperity direction. When I say faith in God makes a difference, I don't mean that the Israelites just really, really trusted God, that they somehow summoned up enough faith that it's this magical key that unlocks the promises of God. Now, at its heart, faith is two things, as Hebrews 11.6 tells us. It's believing that God is and believing that he's good, that he rewards. Sin denies one or both of those things. Either there is no God and or God is not good. Either way, I'm looking for pleasure somewhere else. That's why all sin is idolatry. It's looking to other gods to satisfy. Faith rests in the one true God and in his word, in his promises. So Joshua prepares Israel for the Lord's salvation. He gives him a straightforward call in verse 5. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. He calls them to recognize the Lord, to recognize their sinfulness, and hence the need for this consecration, and to recognize their need for mercy. They're not to waltz presumptuously into the land, even if they could do that. They need to humble themselves before the Lord. And the crossing of the Jordan makes that very clear. At no point along the way could Israel deliver, could they achieve their desires on their own. God delivered them out of Egypt. God parted the Red Sea. God provided for their every need in the wilderness. God led them by cloud and fire. And now on the banks of this mighty river, it's very clear that they need God to even enter the land. And notice too why God brought them to this point. It's explicit in verse 10. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, that he's among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites and all the ites. The Lord leads us throughout life, including leading us into trials, both to fulfill his promises and to strengthen our faith for the future challenges he's calling us to tackle. The Lord is calling you to grow, Christian. He's calling you to grow. So is that how you think about trial and suffering? I'm aware of many sufferings in this room. Many sufferings. Do you think of them with faith? Do you see God in the midst of your sorrow? Do you see how he's calling you to trust in him alone and to find refuge and hope in him? If you're looking at your circumstances or your resources or you're looking to others for your hope, you will be discouraged and unsatisfied. You'll feel unsettled. You'll be surprised and dismayed. But if you look to the Lord, you're enabled to respond differently. And we see that response in this passage as well. Look at verse 8. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. That's faith. Israel's acting in faith and obedience. They're doing what the Lord commands. This is active. It's not passive. And part of his command is to stand still. They're to wait and see the Lord's salvation. God puts the priests in the midst of the Jordan. And then he tells them to wait and see what he does. And so he calls us. 
We're called to look continually to the Lord, to wait for him. We're to act in faith where we can and to wait in faith as well. Either way, we must be looking to and hoping in the Lord and nowhere else. The great temptation in trials is to cast about and to seek refuge and rescue and escape from any source. God, get me out of here. But that's not faith. If God's sovereign, and he is, and if he ordains trials in the lives of his people, and he does, faith is not seeking escape at any cost. It's a continual looking to him. Faith requires courage. It's consecrating our hearts before him. It's fixing in our minds and hearts that we will not go anywhere else for salvation, for there is no other salvation. Faith hopes in God alone. And that's why and how it brings him glory. So consider your trials this morning. And consider your responses to your trials. Are you trusting in the Lord? Or are you casting about? If you're not trusting in the Lord, it is his mercy to lead you to repentance. So that you can both know his forgiveness and grace and begin to go forward in faith and glorify him in your trial and suffering. So we're called to look to the Lord alone and to prepare for his salvation. Which leads us to the second point of deliverance. So now let's read Joshua three fourteen to 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And so we come to the moment of fulfillment. Hundreds and hundreds of years of promise and struggle have led to this moment. Hollywood lives for moments like this. You can imagine how a screenwriter would treat it. First there's this slight burbling sound. And then the, the waters begin to recede. And the banks start to get exposed. And the waters are dried up. And expressions of wonder and hope are seen on the faces of the Israelites. And in this great sweeping panoramic shot, we see miles and miles of the Jordan retreating until it's walled up at Adam, waiting to burst free of its bonds. But this narrative isn't like that. The Bible doesn't do melodrama. This is a dramatic moment, but the drama isn't in the waters. The drama is in the God for whom this feat is effortless. The sparsity of this account is meant to show us that God promises and fulfills and that his word is all-powerful. We don't need sensationalism to recognize that this is a dramatic salvation. The priests proceed into the Jordan and the waters stop. The people cross over. All the nation passes over the Jordan. It is matter of fact. And it is nonetheless remarkable. The Lord is always true 
to his word. You know, in conflict, you always say, don't say always. You always say this. You always do that. But there is an appropriate time to say always. The Lord is always true to his word. Always, without exception, without fail, the Lord is true to his word. No one will ever be able to lay a charge of faithlessness at God's feet. He always delivers and he always and infallibly saves his people. That is our great confidence and our great hope. And it's the hope of Israel in this moment. In chapter 4, this account is linked to the crossing of the Red Sea. This new generation is experiencing a dramatic water rescue. But this time their enemies are not behind them chasing them. This time their enemies are in front of them. On the other side of the water. And that's why Joshua says that this salvation is meant to stir faith for the future. It's meant to drill down deep into the heart of every Israelite that their God is the one who will, without fail, drive out their adversaries and bring them into the land. That truth is reinforced here by the many references to the Ark of the Covenant in this passage. 17 times in these two chapters, it's referenced, which is clearly intended to drive home a point. The ark represents the saving presence of God with his people. A holy God is with his people with the power to save. And the priests carry the symbol of God's presence into the midst of their adversity and the waters are stopped. The people are delivered to safety. God is with his people to save. He will, without fail, drive out their enemies. Now, we don't face water crossings nowadays. We're not going to replicate this moment in our lives. But every Christian has undergone a water ordeal that's every bit as dramatic as this crossing. When you were baptized, you underwent a symbolic death. You died to your own self. And if Jesus was not resurrected, you may as well have just laid down in that tank and stayed there. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And if you've repented and trusted in him, if you've been baptized, then when you rose out of those waters, you were enacting the resurrection that you've received. You've died to sin. You've been made alive to Christ. You are now in union with Christ. And all of the blessings and obedience and promises of God are yes to you in him. You have been saved. And you're enabled to walk a life of obedience to your God. So the land of promise that Israel's entering here is a picture of eschatological rest. A picture of the rest that comes when Jesus returns and leads us into the land of ultimate promise. The new heavens and the new earth. Israel did go on to possess the land here. And then later lost it through faithlessness, through idolatry. Our possession because of Jesus is fixed and secure. Uh, That day will come. Our salvation is coming. As is judgment. The judgment of the Canaanites that happens in the next few chapters is God's wrath against his enemies. It's a picture of the judgments that's coming. That too is certain and fixed. He will judge his enemies. He is not mocked. But the resounding note here is that God saves his people. 
He rescues us from sin and death and brings us into a land flowing with blessing. He secures us in in his love. The, The trials in this life are hard. And we need to be sure that we're in no way minimizing that or denying that. It is hard to live faithful to God in this life. And they are momentary. Even if they last 80 years, they are momentary and cannot compare To the glory we will receive. They cannot compare to the glories we've already experienced in Jesus. And they pale in light of eternal joy with your creator. Are you a Christian? Then open your eyes and recognize what God has given you. Let that salvation stir your faith to embrace all that the father brings into your life. All that he ordains for you. And are you not a Christian? And recognize the great mercy that's being held out to you. Turn from your rebellion. Turn from the certain and fixed wrath of God. And know the mercy and forgiveness and love of the Savior. Of Jesus Christ. He saves sinners. Like me. And like you. His word is true. And his salvation is secure. So as we've prepared and we see the Lord's deliverance, he is faithful to all his promises. Let your your soul bask in that truth. My God is faithful to all of his promises. He never fails. He is not failing you. He is faithful. And that brings us to our final point, which is remembrance. So let's read Joshua 4 now as we finish this passage, a little bit longer text here. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests stood firmly, feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses, All the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua. 
command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do those stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So chapter 4 expounds upon these few verses at the end of chapter 3 on the Lord's deliverance. And it adds a very important note. Part of the crossing of the Jordan was the construction of a small memorial pile. Twelve stones representing each tribe of Israel that was delivered safely through the waters. And the purpose is transparent. This memorial is for that generation but even more so for the generations to come. For for those who had witnessed the death of their parents in the wilderness because of unbelief, the need for generational transfer of the gospel should have been obvious. This God we serve is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of every generation, and his purposes span not just our lifetimes, but all of time itself. The younger generation that would grow up in the land of promise was being called to remember And to experience for themselves the God who saves his people. So for those of you who just spent the past week at youth camp, this message is for you. Will you be faithful to the God of promise? As you listen to the messages this week, as God's word was preached faithfully, your hearts were stirred. What will produce a lifetime of faith? Do you just need to try harder to be a better Christian? Certainly not. Certainly not. Where you you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, you need to repent and know God's mercy and forgiveness and grace. You need to recognize and rejoice in the love that he has shown you. And you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And that love comes especially through experiencing his love and forgiveness for yourself As you repent of your sins. We love him. Because he first loved us. Well there's an obvious call to parents here too. Are we engaging with our children in a way. As to make it clear that it is God who saves. Or are we trusting in ourselves. And in our parenting. Are we ourselves being freshly provoked by the salvation. That we experience in Jesus Christ. When we suffer and face trials. Do we look to God or do we grumble and complain? The faith of parents in the face of adversity is a powerful testimony to the reality of God and his grace. We're saying to our children, this house serves the Lord and we only look to him for salvation. We're not looking anywhere else. There's nowhere else to look. And on the flip side, when parents don't look to the Lord during trials. They're also sending a message. They're saying, God isn't here. We're looking elsewhere. We're trusting in ourselves or others. God may be all right as far as he goes, 
but he doesn't matter in the hard things of life. Joshua 4 is meant to provoke us all. The the pressures of life, the enemies of our souls, our own sinfulness want to do all that they can to extinguish faith or to make it a matter of private or occasional concern. But for Israel, their entire existence as a nation was owed to God. And so for Christians too. If we've tasted the mercy and love of God in Jesus Christ, that salvation is meant to define our lives all the way through from top to bottom, from edge to edge. I have nothing apart from God's grace. And by His grace, I have everything I need to live a life of fulfillment, a life that honors Him, a life that is faithful to my God. How easy it is to lose this perspective. Dale Ralph Davis has written, the greatest enemy of faith may be forgetfulness. Which I think is really just an expression of pride that no longer sees the need for God and his grace. So we call, see that call to faith explicitly in the final words of today's passage. This story, this grand deliverance of Israel was for Israel for every generation, but its scope was even wider than that. As we saw in the story of Rahab last week, the fame of God transcends the borders of his people. His greatness cannot be contained. Those around us are watching us. As as we look to God, we make it clear that we are hoping in him. We're, We're not going anywhere else. They take note. They may despise us or think we're crazy, or they may be intrigued or drawn to discover who is this God and what does he do. And Joshua says that God acts, verse 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know That the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. So the faithful Christian life that looks to the Lord every day in faith is a powerful witness in our world. All around us is meaninglessness and quiet despair. Loneliness and broken relationships. And we know the God who created all things and who acted in history to offer mercy and love to those who don't deserve it. He acts for his own fame so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And he acts for the faith of his people that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You are facing challenges and trials today. And the great question in front of you is not, when will it end? The great question is, who will you trust? Will you trust the Lord? Will you look to him alone for salvation? Because as you do, you honor him and you receive the grace that you need to persevere in faith. You may not be fully delivered from your trials until the Lord returns. And... You can persevere in faith by his grace and bring glory to his name as you continue to look to him to be your God and Savior. That's the theme that Joshua's calling us to today. Remember the Lord's salvation so that you might walk in faith all your days. Remember the Lord's salvation so that you might walk in faith all your days. I'm going to ask John and the band to come up. Every day, in every way, the Lord is after your faith. How do you face challenges in your life? How do you assess suffering? 
How do you deal with conflict? Do wrongs against you play over and over in your mind? Or does the Lord's mercy and forgiveness allow you to walk forward in love? Do your sorrows and the the press of life derail your hope? Or do you look to the Lord in your travails? Have the regrets of your past become your loudest companion? Or have God's grace and mercy put those things in their proper place? You will face sorrow and suffering in this life. Children, it is so important that you recognize this. You will face sorrow and suffering in this life. By and large, your lives are good. Your sorrows may seem light, but this is a desperately broken world. Sin surrounds us. Sin dwells within us. We, we all need deliverance from the brokenness of life and, and from the wrath of God that we deserve. When we suffer, it's meant to provoke us to turn to the Lord, to cry out to the Lord. So children, have you trusted Jesus? Do you recognize that you sin and that you need a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior? He is our one true hope. Trust in Him. If you're here today and you're enduring a particularly difficult and prolonged season of suffering, please listen. The Lord is with you and the Lord is for you. That's a paraphrase of Psalm 56.9 which has become uh, precious to us in a recent season of suffering. Psalm 56.9 This I know that God is for me. This I know that God is for me. He is always faithful to His promises. I don't know how long the Lord will call you to suffer. But He does. Your suffering will not go one moment longer than He has ordained. One moment longer than is necessary to accomplish His good purposes in your life. He is after your faith. Trust in Him. Look to Him. Know His love in the midst of your hardship. Many times, both in Scripture and in personal experience, the the sweetest taste of the Savior's love is in the moments of greatest sorrow. When you're desperate and you're tempted to despair, know the love of your Savior. To know that you have a Savior who loves you and is with you and is working good purposes in your life is a precious promise indeed. No sorrow in this life can compare to the glory that awaits you. So remember the Lord's salvation that you might walk in faith all your days. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.